Welcome to Learte de l'Armée, the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. Today's guest is Jay Maxwell. Jay began studying Western martial arts in the early 2000s. He regularly teaches at high-profile international events, and in his competitive years was one of the top-ranked team offensers in the world. Jay is also the organizer of the world's largest Bolognese event, the English Side Sword Open, and is a member of the organizing panel for European League Series events. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's uh, it's a privilege, privilege to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm really looking forward to your insights. Um, you know, I was, uh, I've really enjoyed um, exploring your content that you've produced, uh, especially through the lockdown, uh, your series on the partisan and the uh, bill hook and the two handed sword have just been absolutely fantastic. Well, I'll help any way I can. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your martial arts background uh, and how you got started in the Bolognese system. Well, heavens. Um, I suppose I started, I was, I was in primary school when uh, I first started martial arts. Um, I really wanted to do some flashy kicking martial art like uh, karate or something. Um, it was uh, back in the, in the 80s and obviously the, the Hong Kong movie school and all that was, was all the rage. But my mother, uh, my mother was uh, an old school judoka uh, and she insisted that I practice judo because she told me it was a, a much more effective martial art. Um, at the time, I, I was uh, I obviously didn't want to believe that. I was very into, into the Bruce Lee scene and, and all this stuff. But looking back, she was, of course, completely correct. Um, starting from there, uh, in school, I first started fencing, uh, the, the modern form of fencing. Uh, I practiced various martial arts from uh, starting with judo through Aikido, I obviously did also practice karate, um, but none of them really, really captivated me. Um, I, I, I grew up with old black and white movies, things like uh, Errol Flynn, Captain Blood, um, uh, Basil Rathbone was a particular favorite. And I wanted to, to do something like that, which is how I got into fencing in the first place. Uh, but it just, didn't, it just didn't click either the same way. I wanted to be a swordsman. Um, I didn't want to be scoring points. I wanted to, to actively engage in, in these scenes that were playing out in my head. Um, and it wasn't until I was in my 20s and I was a, a penniless student that I was approached by someone in a pub and we got into a conversation. And just like that, I discovered HEMA. Um, I started off with uh, English systems uh, and interestingly enough one of the first systems I practiced was the single stick coming back to a conversation we had earlier uh, which I think is is an excellent training tool and a very underrated one um, and I continued with this for for some time uh, and then one day I saw a different system being practiced and I was completely taken by the elegance of it um, and the the seeming effortlessness of it and that was how I got hooked into the Italian systems. And yeah, that's, that's, that's how that began. Yeah, I think that's what I, I have a very similar, uh, I think, affinity in, in terms of watching people doing the Bolognese system. It just seemed to flow and, that, and with such effortlessness, um, it was beautiful. And, and, but also martial and deadly too, right? 
you were talking about getting into kick kicks that actually kind of brings me to something that um you know one of the things i was really inspired uh, by uh, after the uh, facebook group did their uh, bolognese form tournament you shared a video or somebody might have shared a video of a lecture that you had done um with doing the uh gambla vada and hmm. uh, that was really fantastic can you explain the gambla vada um certainly i mean it's uh uh, Marozzo, he does it uh, retreating the right foot with a, a reverso. Um, but Dallagocchia, he retreats the right foot with a stramazzone. And the, the concept to me is the same. Um, so what you're doing is you're actually flexing through your hips and remaining level as you draw your, your front foot through and just slide it back. Um, and as you're doing so, you're keeping your arm extended uh, and you're performing uh, a wrist cut. And the whole idea is that you're drawing your opponent in. I mean, this is really one of the key concepts of the Bolognese art, is that you're creating an opening. Uh, and the way that I like to use it is to, uh, to throw uh, a mandrito at the opponent, at their arm, and to, to miss. For the opponent to then try and chase you down on the retreat, and you just turn a quick cut, to strike them on the opposite side of the hand while you're retreating. So their foot is in the air, and as Bodalagoki, they are therefore giving you a tempo while you're retreating backwards and striking. And you need to extend back into a, a fairly long stretch. I mean, where it comes into the complexity of it is the body mechanics. As you're throwing your, what was your front foot behind, you're extending your body and counterbalancing with the leg. Really, the cuts, the the uh, uh, the stramazzone should land on your opponent's wrist before your rear foot has landed, and you then rock back again. Very interesting. Yeah. It, so, you know, the concepts I see this a lot, especially um, in the Anonimo. I've been going through the Anonimo's uh, left-handed versus right-handed plays, and it seems this mm -hmm. constant sort of so much of what he does is from wide measure, uh, you know, you're starting your actions in wide guards, you're approaching, you're enticing your opponent to come in. And then uh, he loves to do that, uh, where he does that reversal back across as he's stepping back. So you sort of entice them to come in, create an opening by going into like Porta de Ferro Larga, and then just mm -hmm. slash your arm with that reversal as you're stepping back. And it seems that it, fighting a left-handed opponent is all about fighting from wide measure, which I find really fascinating. Um, it's something that I'm, I'm just starting to really kind of get into and dive into the text in. Well, it's fighting from wide measure, but also uh, in stepping in the direction of their weapon. Mm. So to, uh, to really be, be drawing them uh, to provide you with the advantage. Yeah, and that's kind of like Manchilino's advice too, right? Step, always stepping behind or stepping uh, with your cuts, always stepping behind your cuts, I think is what he says when you're fighting a left-handed opponent. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's that's core, cool, not just against the left-handed opponent. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of times we run into this disconnect with um, some of the Bolognese masters where because they do break things up, Morazzo in particular, um, I guess at times can be guilty of this where he breaks up his strata plays from his wide measure plays and so on and so forth. But when when it actually comes to combining those things um mm -hmm. sometimes we can the anonimo 
or we can look to Manchiolino and, and perhaps even Marazzo's single sword is a really great example of that. But when you're teaching fencing, when you're engaging in fencing, how do you connect those two things, white play and narrow play? Well, through the principles. Um, at the end of the day, techniques are just principles and action. They're demonstrations of how to use these core principles of the art. Uh, even uh, Marozzo says when he is starting to teach you the narrow play is that when you teach them you're supposed to intersperse them you're not just supposed to be teaching the the wide play and then teaching the narrow play you need to mix it up a little um, and all of the the Italian systems in fact all systems um, if you just open the books and you look at the techniques uh, and you you teach these your students will get very little out of it because really what you're trying to do is you're trying to instill in them an understanding of why these things are done. Yeah, I think uh, I, uh, the reason I brought this up is because I think we have almost this weird opposite issue now and and especially in the modern HEMA uh, fighting scene, I guess, um, where mm. so many people fight more narrow um, and just completely avoid the wide play. Uh, a lot of times you just have people who will press in, go straight to what I would consider narrow measure, or at least approaching narrow measure and start doing actions. And so it's almost like Dalagoke where he's talking about how, <laughs> you know, wide play is something that the ancients had done, uh, but uh, narrow play was the fighting of the age. And maybe that's a, a fault of us being able to study multiple systems and, and you know, focusing on things like rapier and things like that and, and people having that influence coming in. But you even see this a little bit with other traditions like KDF, um, where people mm -hmm. just want to fight narrow from the very beginning and sort of avoid wide play. So how would you work backwards, working from sort of that focus of narrow play and incorporating wide play when you have such a narrow play focus? Well, this is, uh, if, you, if you think from the perspective of boxing, this is where it comes down to ring craft. It's about controlling the environment around you. And that includes your opponent. Um, and the most important thing is not to just step back. You need to step offline. If your opponent is just going to bull charge you, really, that's an advantage to you. Their feet will be in the air. They will be performing uh, an, an attack. They've given you the tempo. The, the trick is just to react within that opportunity, that window before it closes. Um, there was um, a fairly widely shared photograph from one of my classes where my students were fencing with forks. So the... Um, one person would have a sword, the other person would have a fork. And they were told, right, now fight this guy. Um, and if they charged in with a fork, obviously it wasn't going to do anything. They had, yeah. to, they had to maintain control of the opponent's blade. The opponent was told, restrict yourself to the upper half of the body uh, and don't throw cuts. Just try to, just try to land a thrust on them. And by um, keeping that, that contact and by um, uh, controlling the opponent's weapon, they were able to maintain their measure. And if the opponent charged in with a displacement, they had control of the weapon. But the only way to do that is not just to step back, but either to step forward offline or to step to the side. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, the yeah. Gamba Levata is a perfect example of exactly how to do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, on the Tempest Fugitives blog, you posted something that was really great. Um, 
about measure and you took the compass um the or the symbol the signal uh that Marazzo shows mm-hmm. uh through comparison with other northern italian sources kind of laid out the measurements for that mm-hmm. um how do you feel like measure um and the approach of measure and i guess the recognition of measure can be uh better understood uh, especially when working with the symbol Oh, when when working from the senor, this is just my interpretation. Other people have different interpretations. I don't claim to be uh, the sole correct uh, interpreter of this this methodology. But um, going from um, uh, Docellini and uh, Palladini, um, we do have the correct measurements to work for those, and it certainly works uh, for us when when we're practicing. Um, and the idea here is that you are using the, the spokes of the wheel uh, to step uh, in the opposite direction. You're mirroring your opponent. Uh, and in doing so, you're going to be protecting yourself against your opponent's actions. Um, so for example, if you're both throwing a mandrito at the same time, uh, or if you're both lifting into uh, a guadidentrade at the same time and you're both stepping, how would you react to this? Uh, and you can turn this into a very functional flow drill. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, you know, there's there's a really great piece of advice that Dalagokie gives where he says always to turn your body behind your cut, um, almost mm-hmm. like he's to sort of reposition your back foot. It, one, to gain leverage, because if you do that, you're going to gain leverage. And two, uh, because it, may, it it's safe. And I think that's essentially what he says when he gives this little piece of advice. Um, mm-hmm. But I think a lot of times it's often overlooked. So we end up you know, some people will take Dalagoki and make it very linear, but it seems like Dalagoki has a very circular style. Um, how, how, well, the, yeah, sorry, go, go on. No, good. I was just going to say that that's precisely why this particular movement um, is one of our, our warm-ups at every class. Um, you're throwing cuts on either side and stepping beside, behind it. Um, so it's you're forming um, a, a sideways figure eight, an infinity symbol, throwing cuts and on each cut you need to be uh bringing your feet uh alongside each other and then throwing what was the front leg behind the other and continue doing this um and over time it just becomes second nature but coming to what you were you were saying before that people will always while they're they're learning something they'll naturally gravitate towards the easiest way of doing it Um, So whether that's footwork or throwing a cart or approaching the opponent, um, and this is how we get into people just focusing on the close play. They always want to take the the easiest approach. Uh, In in the Italian systems, especially in the Bolognese system, there is uh, a term, and that is sprezzatura. Sprezzatura means to to do something that is difficult and make it look effortless. Uh, Ballet is a perfect example of this. If no one had ever told you and you'd never practiced it and you watched ballet on stage you'd probably think oh i can do that you know you're just tripping around on tiptoes and flicking the odd kick um and then you actually give it a go and you realize well actually no i can't do this uh and the bolognese system is is like that as well you really need to force yourself to go through these uncomfortable movements to observe yourself either through a camera or on a mirror and make sure that you're, you're performing these things mechanically correctly. Uh, because otherwise you'll take shorter steps. Um, you'll take a, a more 
roundabout route, you'll, uh, you'll let your posture slouch. Uh, you'll draw your body weight more centrally or more backwards. Um, and really, it's about training your body to, to be comfortable in these positions. Yeah, that's really great. And, you know, I, I feel like I, the thing that highlighted this the most for me is because I think when I've always approached Murazzo in a way where I've done it with a lot of dynamic body action um, and Delagoke the same because, you know, looking at his advice and stuff like that. But then I came back and I was working through Manchilino's sword and large buckler and the amount of detail that he gives you on your trailing foot coming behind your lead foot as you step and perform mm. a cut. And if you can time those actions a lot of times with your cuts, I feel like you can really make something that for the most part wouldn't necessarily be a, a, that powerful of a cut, really powerful. Um, and, and that really highlighted that for me. And then of course, if you read the Anonimo, you're <laughs> constantly, you're, you, he speaks more to your trailing foot sometimes than he does your lead foot. Mm. Um, which is great. I mean, I, it's it's really um, really interesting. But well, it comes down to, to gravity and core strength. You're pivoting on the ball of the foot, um, and you're using your rear your rear leg again, like like described earlier, as a counterbalance. Uh, by keeping your core tight as you throw this cut, the cut is actually helping your body also pivot, and this becomes a, a single action. But again, it, it takes constant action, uh, a constant practice uh, to get the action right. Yeah. You know, so one of the things um, I, I wanted to ask, um, you know, when I when I generally look for what makes a good form presentation. So if you're anybody who's sort of demonstrating any sort of swordsmanship, I always look for like four core principles and that's speed, power, flow and sense of enemy. Um, mm -hmm. And in the videos that you've been posting, you encompass these elements in a way that I rarely see um, in the techniques you've been presenting online. Um, what's brought you to this level of technical proficiency? And what advice do you have for those who might be striving to reach that level? Well, I, I think really um, when we're fighting, for example, with the, the, the spada sola, the, 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 the side sword by itself, um, we can train with these fairly safely. It is at the end still a baseball bat, whether it's made of steel or it's made of plastic or whatever. Um, but we have adequate protection that we can go with a, a relative amount of intent at one another. Anything that's, that's larger than a side sword, you need a lot more control uh, if you're going to be actually training with somebody. You, I don't believe that you could safely spar with someone with a, a full weight spud on it, uh, God forbid, with a pole arm. Um, we're working on, on a few sparring options for pole arms, but I don't think we're ever going to be at a position where we could we could actually spar with intent uh, or, or compete with intent with pole arms. So when it comes to performing solo drills uh, with, for example, uh, a, a partisan um, or a spadan romani, um, you can't just hop through this thing. So you, you, you can't think of yourself like you're just performing a dance. Um, I forget who it was who wrote it. Um, I think it was Marazzo. That al although the footwork of dancing uh, will, will aid you um, as a swordsman, you have to now perform it with intensity. You have, you, you, if you're going through uh, 
the practice with the sword. You have to perform it um, with a, a, a singular focus, and that is to drill yourself in skill at arms. So when I'm performing the drills for these videos, um, I'm trying to perform them as though I'm actually attacking an opponent, which means it has to be performed explosively. Uh, you have to be creating an opportunity. For example, when you're throwing a falso, uh, sorry, if you're by, by throwing a, uh, a feint at your opponent, uh, you, are, you are trying to create an opening, which means a feint has to look as though it's meant to land, to draw your opponent. The follow-up action has to be performed with the intention uh, of killing your opponent. And when you're, when you're retreating, it has to be out of the measure of your opponent's blade. So in answer to the question, the drills are performed uh, as though I'm, I'm, I'm training to, to actually do something legitimate rather than just as a performance piece. And this is also why I like to perform these actions on rough ground and in high grass, on a slope, on things like that, just because, again, it adds another level of challenge to it. Yeah. And is it the, it's the Anonimo, I believe, that speaks about fighting on different surfaces. It might be Manchilino. I can't remember. One of them uh, speaks... Uh, uh, it's, it's mentioned by a lot of authors uh, over many centuries. Yeah. You've been really kind of spending a lot of time lately with uh, the two-handed sword and the partisan. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have, if you had to sort of set yourself in a situation where you're actually fighting somebody in earnest, um, mm -hmm. what, what would you choose? If you were going with Manchilino's advice on, on being the person who could choose your weapon, what would you choose? <laughs> um, I would choose the, the Ronka. Oh, nice. <laughs> Um, I, I had one. Yeah. I had one. I had one made um, uh, by Paul Bins, uh, quite a well-known bladesmith, and he told me he's never going to make one again because <laughs> no matter which angle he approached it from, he always ended up stabbing or cutting himself. <laughs> now the Baronga is not the the lightest weapon. Um, it's it's fairly fairly weighty, but what I like about it is that even if you miss your opponent you can lacerate them by pulling uh, or you can catch them with one of the other spikes by pushing to pushing forwards or to the side or whatever. You can use the fork to catch your opponent's weapon. Uh, and it's also the, for me, the pinnacle of the pole arms, because when I look at Marozzo, I believe he's actually teaching you step by step onto more complex forms of pole arms, starting you with the, the partisan and then the spiedo uh, and so forth until you, you reach the bill which encompasses all of these different things hmm. even george silver said that the welsh bill is uh the the best weapon for single combat but yeah. it's the it's the two-handed sword that's always been held up as uh the weapon of a master which is why they would have themselves painted their portrait said holding the two-handed sword just because it's it's a weapon where you really have to first develop everything else before you move on to that so uh, when it comes to like the authors, um, who do you think really speaks to you the most um, of the Bolognese authors? Um, I don't think there's really one who speaks to me the most. Uh, I, I think every one of them has got valid points. Um, as, I, as I said uh, before, it all comes down to the principles and the principles are fundamental throughout the Italian system uh, all through this, the, the 16th century and into the 17th. 
Um, it's only once we get towards the end of the 16th century, they start changing um, first with, with a gripper and then with the, the later longer weapons, the, uh, the manner of their use started to change more dramatically. But throughout the 16th century, um, really what I think we're seeing, even when the terminology changes uh, with certain people like Vigiani, for example, who went completely off the rails. Yeah. Um, but uh, really what we're seeing is the same system demonstrated by people with different preferences. So if, if, you, if you teach your students sooner or later, they're going, to, um, they're going to move slightly away from the way that you fight. They're not just going to be carbon copies of you. They're going to develop their own way of fighting. Uh, you have to start everybody the same. Everybody has to, to learn the basics the same way. But then, then they have to have freedom to explore and see how they move and how their mind works and become a swordsman in their own right. And of course, this is how the, the old masters developed as well. Manchulino and Marozzo, they had this, the same master, but and they, they even named their books the same. Um, uh, and you can see the, the teachings throughout it. But, uh, but I think they both fought in different ways, which is why Manchulino has a, a number of guards that aren't in Marozzo, and Marozzo has guards that aren't in Manchulino. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. That's one of the things that I always really liked uh, about the Wichtenauer compilation of um, the KDS treatises uh, that Michael Chedester had put together, where he compares Ringek, pseudo, uh, Peter von Danzig, and um, I think 3227A in his original one. I haven't, I haven't looked at it since, but being able to line up those sources and compare, you know, the differences in what they say and the differences in their styles was always really fascinating because it is really just a bunch of different people putting their own spin on their interpretation or perhaps the interpretation that they were taught of the Zettel. Um, and I, I feel like that's similar to exactly what you were just saying with the different Bolognese masters where like, you know, from Marazzo in particular, when he's fighting with a single-handed sword, you know, it's a lot of integration of wide play and narrow play actions. Um, and then the Anonimo, we see this, this uh, perhaps more emphasis on using beats and really kind of closing in, finding your opponent's sword, uh, using uh, um, stringere. And then with Manchiolino, it's a lot more defensive. It's more, you know, very kind of, I'm going to approach, my provocation is going to be my entering measure and getting you to attack me so that way I can take the initiative back from you through my defense. Mm -hmm. um, and I always found that fascinating that we, we get these different personalities. Like you can almost pull the personalities out of the different masters of the Bolognese system. Hmm. Yeah, so I mean, with Mangelino, you can certainly see that with his uh, love of Potterifero guards. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Anonimo, um, we, we always refer to Anonimo as him, like an individual. When Anonimo is, of course, a, a collection of fragments uh, and we don't even know if we can attribute them all to the the same person. And there are so many bits of parts of that uh, of that that are missing, um, where we're missing uh, segments of it that we can't really tell what the anonymous preference would have been. Or although he loves grappling, which may just be a, a product of the times, as the 16th century dragged on, uh, grappling became more and more gauche, and it wasn't taught in the in the halls. It was considered a, a very impolite thing. Um, and that's one of the things that I like about Lovino, 
Lavina wearing this uh the the, the wearing the the full um the the, the the full late 16th century very colorful plates and uh dainty little swords and then suddenly you've got them hoisting them by their leg and dropping them on their head uh which which normally we only see uh after lengthy military campaigns like the Italian wars or the 30 years war uh the 30 years war I was particularly enamored when I saw uh, how the uh, the fencing books went from being inches thick to being suddenly what seemed to be just a few pages uh, where they're teaching you exactly what works. And of course, uh, the Bolognese system, as we know it specifically, so the, the, um, the Anonimo and uh, uh, Barazzo and so forth, uh, came at the tail end of the Italian wars, which is why uh, I think we can look at it as such a functional system. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So you brought up something that I, th I thought was pretty fascinating about the Anonimo. Seeing it as being pieced together, do you think that it's possible that the Anonimo might have been some sort of like a house book where different masters would sort of put their notes together, similar to what we see from the KDF authors? It's possible. I was in Cesena a few years ago and uh, I tried to get access uh, to see the Anonimo. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the only reason I couldn't get in there because the the vault, it's it's up a marble staircase in the uh, uh, the the regional library, and there's you know, angel guardians on the sides and big locked doors, and it looked like looked like St Peter's Gate. And I was I was thinking, oh, I want to see what's behind there. But you need two you need two keys to get in there, and these uh, these these lovely Italian. Italian gatekeepers were so keen to get me in there because I was so enthusiastic and they just couldn't get the other person with the key so <laughs> unfortunately yeah. I, I I just don't know it sounds it sounds divine <laughs> I I'm, I'm glad to I'm glad to know that the anonymous was being so well kept that's fantastic hmm. well at the, I was at the museum though as well and it was almost empty and it was you know Ch Cesena isn't known for its arms museum um, and I, I just thought, I just walked in there and I wandered around and uh, vast racks of weapons and fantastic swords from the 16th century, uh, armor piercing swords and all sorts. Um, and I asked one of the, the, the old ladies asleep in a chair, I asked her, why is no one here? And she said, oh, it's always like this. And I asked my, my host later, um, Oh, you've got this wonderful museum. How come there's no one there? And my host said, I didn't even know we had a museum. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <sighs> you know, coming from a United States perspective, that that pains me because if I if I had that history at my fingertips, which we have history at our fingertips, but not to that extent, if I had it there, I would be there all the time. And to think that there you know, that it gets overlooked. It's just heartbreaking to me. Well, I'm the same, but that's because uh, my father was a historian um, and he instilled in me in a love in, in history and as, uh, especially to treasure and value and protect uh, antiquity. We are, we are our history. It's what makes us who and what we are. But um, in Italy, uh, I've, I've got um, friends and former students uh, living uh, in South Italy, and they keep trying to convince me to move there. And I said, oh, well, maybe if you can find me a, a house that's at least 500 years old with a central courtyard and a, a large underground cellar. Um, 
and they just come back to me and they say, Jay, come on, this is Italy. There's nothing here that's less than 500 years old. <laughs> <laughs> that's no, that's that's true. We actually so in, within our our school group, we have a uh, a constant conversation that we have where if somebody sees a castle that's posted for sale somewhere, we'll we'll post it within this group, and we're constantly getting these you know four or five hundred year old homes or villas in uh, in Italy with like these immaculate just just properties that are rich with uh you know olive trees and all this vegetation and it's amazing and i, I i'm tempted i would love to do that i would love to go and just live in an italian villa and just go out and fence that would be fantastic well there's there's a, a town um and all the people have moved away from it because it's a bit off the beaten track but again all, all the houses are hundreds of years old and beautiful beautiful countryside built on a mountainside um and uh i i was saying oh this looks like a lovely place to go to and of course my uh, my friends in italy they come back to me and say jay don't go there there are more wolves than people um uh, but I, I think it'd be fantastic if a whole load of hemists just all all at once got up and moved and just took over an old village somewhere in Italy. <laughs> and uh, within a year, all the different schools will be feuding with each other in the nicest possible way, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds fantastic. You know, I, I've, I really enjoy Guy Windsor's podcast and he always asks people what they would want to do uh, if they had a million dollars. And it seems like the answer is always set up some sort of a center for research, study, and practice of martial arts um, and Western martial arts. And of course, um, what else are you going to do with money? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> is that to fuel our passion, isn't it? That's right. But, you know, in, in thinking of that, where they've, you know, there've been constant offers to, you know, have people move into these old medieval villages in Italy. I mean, if, we, if enough of us did get together, I mean, we could create that academic center. So, oh, um, absolutely. And there's some brilliant people in the Hema community. So I think it would be, an, <laughs> it would be absolutely amazing. Um, I would like to see that happen. Someone needs to start a program, I think. I agree. I agree. So when you are coming up with your uh, interpretations of the Bolognese material, um, what are some challenges that you've faced and how have you overcome them? Oh, uh, let's see. Um, I suppose one of the challenges is who you're trying to teach the, these things to. Uh, I mean, do you, do you mean in uh, transferring the interpretations or coming up with the interpretation in the first place? Uh, either. I mean, I think both would be helpful. Um, well, I suppose... Uh, the first thing is taking uh, the original Italian uh, and trying to understand it correctly, because obviously there's there's nuance in any language, um, and it's it's easy to to get something wrong. I mean, we were talking about partisan earlier. Um, in the first action in partisan after the the Rivarenza, so really the second action, um, he says, "Hold it with your left hand," mm. and. For me, the interpretation is don't release with the left hand. But in the very next action, uh, he's already saying um, slide it 
through your left hand without releasing it. So does he now mean hold firmly with your left hand or slide it through the left hand? Um, so that's, that's one challenge. And I suppose really it just comes down to, uh, first of all, practicing it, um, either first, first with yourself and then practicing it with another person, but also open and honest debate with your peers. So talk to people, discuss these things, um, and don't, don't be offended when someone says, well, I have a different interpretation. Uh, if anything, you should, you should welcome it and be delighted that other people are also thinking about the same problem. Uh, I think there are too many people who want to be gurus uh, and don't want, to, uh, don't want to develop any further. They just want to be, uh, they just want to be put on an, on an ultimate worship. Yeah, ego is always the uh, the ultimate villain of any martial artist. Um, oh, absolutely. And when it comes to transferring, uh, so teaching someone the interpretation, um, it's about teaching the right people. Um, you, you'll always get uh, all manner of students, uh, and you need to pay each one of them your fullest attention, uh, at least initially. But over time, you get a feel for who's actually wanting to learn. Uh, and who just wants to say that they do something and everyone is entitled to be there and everyone is entitled to, to your, to your time. But if people just want to waste your time, uh, you can only invest so much into them. I've, I've had people telling me when I'm trying to demonstrate a movement to them, they've said to me, well, my body just doesn't move like that. Well, no, of course it doesn't. You're doing it for the first time. It takes practice. These, these things have to have to develop. Um, I've, I've had uh, Royal Marine commandos come into my class, absolute mountains of muscle. And because they're using muscles they've never used before, um, they're, 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 they're sweating and they're struggling. And well, it, it just takes time to develop these, these new muscles uh, and to develop the flexibility that you need. So yes, I suppose uh, really one of the challenges is just having people willing to absorb and to to put in the effort that's required uh, to to be able to perform them. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting because there's definitely a level of, of sweat equity and just dedication and understanding, you know, and, and going back to the whole ego thing, right? You, it's all about humbling yourself and being able to take yourself down and realize that you're a blank slate and you're going to have to build yourself up well you, you never stop learning um i mean when i was uh doing these these videos at the end of um doing uh Marozzo's first play with the uh the spider duomani um i i did post up that i was uh starting a, a new journey and I'm, i want to learn from people on the way, uh, anything that I can to help develop me myself uh, as a teacher and as a swordsman, and that was a, an, an open invitation. I'm, uh, I, I, I've never gone into a class or a workshop, even if afterwards I walked out and I thought, well, that was rubbish. Um, I've never come out with nothing, even if it's just a, another perspective uh, or a different way of looking at something. It's it's always worth listening to people. Uh, are you familiar with the Desiderata? I'm not, no. Um, it was a fairly short um, page, uh, and it was talking about how in life there were always the loud and the noisy and the objectionable. 
but you need to go placidly through life um, and not allow yourself to be distracted. Uh, and that's really something that I, that I take to heart. Um, what's the point in getting, getting vexatious and irritable? Um, it's, it's just going to distract you from your calling. If you have to raise your voice, you've already lost the argument, basically. Yeah, that's a beautiful perspective. How do you view the Bolognese material and context or comparison of other sources or traditions? Mm, I, I always think there's more similarities than there are differences. Uh, remember that uh, the borders at the time when these works were written were completely different. So when we talk about Italy and Germany, these were principalities and uh, minor kingdoms. Uh, it was, it was a, a far more split Europe than what we see today. And military technology and military training didn't just stop in one small principality. Uh, we have um, uh, roaming war bands of mercenaries. We have the, the Landsknechte. We have the, uh, the Swiss pike blocks. We have uh, the Italian condottieri. Um, and these people would all intermingle and intermix and talk to one another. And now if we take fencing masters, Fencing masters, they might set up a school somewhere, but students would be sent to a famous fencing master from all across Europe. Uh, a, a duke would send his students to train with Fabris because he's so renowned. And eventually, Fabris traveled into Germany and then up to Sweden, where finally his, his work was published. Um, these, this information wasn't just in one, in one place. Everything influenced everything else. We look at uh, the Rotella and we think, oh, that's an Italian weapon. Well, it was most famous from the Spanish uh, Rodelieros. Um, it was the, the round shield was called also a, a Taj. Um, it was uh, carried in Germany. It was carried in England. Uh, the, uh, the, the Scots are famed for now for, having, for, uh, for using Tajes fairly late, but it was before that used everywhere. Um, so, yes, I'm, I... I think it all influenced everything else. Fiore was Fiore Italian. I mean, I, I think there's a, a fair. Well, by modern standards, he would be. He was a Friulian. Yeah, no, I, I always find that really interesting because I have a. I think we are on the same page on that because I've constantly pointed to, you know, when people question the sort of overall scope of Marazzo, for example. Um, I always point to somebody like the, his named students. You look at Giacomo Crafter. Jacob Crafter was the son of Augsburg merchants, um, very wealthy Augsburg merchants, so Southern German. Um, and, you know, you there was a lot of intersectionality. I think uh, Stephen Freitas brought this up uh, in our, when I was talking to him, and it, it's a was a really good insight. One of the things that we always have to remember is that Bologna in particular was sort of an epicenter of education. It was one of the biggest oh, universities yeah. in Europe at the time. And there it's the oldest university in, in it's the oldest university as well. It predates Oxford by I think a decade. Yeah. So and and you had people traveling from all over. And you know, mm. the scope of influence of the uh, sort of Italians in general at that time, because they were free cities and they were, you know, you had people who ha were independently wealthy um, versus, mm -hmm. you know, relying on a land-based system 
they had a lot more freedom to travel, to move, to spread their ideas. Um, you know, we see that from, especially through like uh, the Medici Bank um, and the the Venetians. I mean, a lot of times I always think, you know, it, we get way too caught up in these modern ideologies of, like you said, sort of fixed borders um, or even just sort of national perspectives where um, everything at that time was a lot more homogenous and just very sort of open. I don't even know if Italians at the time would have considered themselves strictly European as much as they would have considered themselves more uh, sort of uh, citizens of the Mediterranean, you know? Well, yeah. Um, how would you describe the Venetians? Oh, yeah. I mean, they were everywhere. <laughs> they were they were absolutely everywhere. Hmm. Yes, but uh, this idea uh, of uh, just the landed nobility going about, it, it didn't really change that much um i mean the in the in the 19th century for example uh an english gentleman was expected to round out his education by going and traveling through italy uh to see the the source of the classics and uh generally come back complaining about the food um at the, at the time everything was was much more tumbled down the uh the, the ruins of rome were uh used to uh to hold cattle in uh, and people were, for centuries, stealing the stone from the, the old buildings uh, to build their farmhouses and whatnot. Uh, the Colosseum uh, was a, a waste pit. Um, and they, uh, there's some, some beautiful artwork, uh, paintings of the, the old ruins, which uh, uh, I find really quite touching to look at. Um, but uh, even uh, in my parents' generation, you would still be expected to go out and travel. Uh, and now uh, uh, at university, you still take uh, a year out to go out and travel around Europe, for example. Uh, and this is still exactly the same concept. You, you want to go out and you want to actually touch these, these, these worlds different from your own. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, even from the if we look at uh, 3227A, it says that Lichtenauer traveled far and wide to learn the art. Um, I think uh, Joachim Meyer says the same thing. He talks about his travels, mm -hmm. the fact that he had traveled to learn. Um, and there are a lot of data points that show that this was not some sort of a regionalistic thing. Um, a lot of these concepts, like you said, are, are very um, universal. Mm. Well, I mean, if, if you look in uh, Pietro Monte, um, he's very specific that, you know, an English person fights like this, a French person fights like this. Yeah. Um, but uh, really, I think he's, he's more the exception uh, because he traveled around and he's probably just describing what he saw in those individual places. Um, a lot of these fencing manuals were written by people who had been soldiers. Um, and were coming towards the end of their lives, and they were describing what it is that they had seen. So you might have, um, for example, uh, Saviolo uh, talking about Italian fencing, but also influenced by by Spanish fencing and French fencing, and probably yeah. English fencing. Uh, coming back to something that you said earlier um, about uh, different systems in different parts of the world as well, uh, I think it's quite quite telling that the most polemic um, enemy of all things Italian, George Silver, 
who complained, complained about Italian fencing so very, very bitterly, then proceeded to describe a system that is in most regards almost identical to the Italian systems, right down to the, uh, the fundamental aspect. Yeah, uh, the irony of that was not lost on me either. Uh, when, when the greater human community had their big blow up about George Silver just recently, I think it was actually what, the start of the pandemic. Um, Which time? <laughs> the most recent one. Uh, the most recent one. Um, so I was I was giggling because, you know, I was I had just gotten my hands on the Anonymo, I think, and I had just read through the introduction to the Anonymo and reading through all the discussions that were going on about Silver's True Times, I was like, man, that reads a lot like the introduction to the Anonymo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I got a good kick out of that. But, you know, when it comes to the idea of also traveling ideas. Um, and, and when we think about mercenary captains and things like that, it's almost like football, right? I mean, you might have a German coach who travels to London and teaches a German style, and he has a team of predominantly English players, let's say, or maybe a, a quarter English players. And one of those players uh, may have grown up in, I don't know, um, Fulham or something like that. And he might've come up through the youth ranks in Fulham learning a very English style, but then he gets influenced by this coach that teaches the gang and press, right? And so then mm. he system and perhaps he's successful. Um, and then he goes on and he integrates when he eventually becomes a coach, integrates those two things together to develop his own style. And that's how those things progress. And we mm. see that played out in, in Northern Italy where we have these constant incursions of, you know, knights in Germany that were either bored or looking for some sort of wealth who would just come down into Italy and go on these campaigns and hire a bunch of Italians to sort of build up the core of their infantry. And it's not like they weren't training together. You know, they didn't just sit across from each other and like, you guys do whatever you do. We're going to do what we do. Um, mm -hmm. They integrated into a, you know, a unit and they became, you know, their own mercenary group. And so you have to believe that there was some dissemination of ideas um, that came out. I mean, you know, John Hawkwood is a perfect example of that. I mean, he oh, had yeah. a, a multicultural um, unit of men who were, you know, English, Spanish, Italian, German. I mean, it was a melting pot of ideas. And that's just at like the end of the, uh, the 1300s and going into the 1400s. And of course, those, those ideas persisted. And that's really kind of perhaps where we get Fiore. So, um, I don't know. It's it's really uh, it's really interesting, and it's it's hard to think that there would be um, any sort of isolation in the way that sometimes that misconception comes about. We we often seem to think of um, historical na nations as though there's some sort of a uh, a solid wall built around it, and that no one ever crossed those borders, and everything just developed in complete isolation, which is of course nonsense. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So when it comes to the strategic system, or at least the uh, strategic or tactical approach to the Bolognese system, what do you think mm -hmm. are some of the core tenets? Well, the, I, I think that when it comes to the, the tactical aspect, it's the concept of invitation, creating an opening and thinking several moves ahead. So, for, for example, um, if you're stepping towards your opponent uh, and you're using the, the two-handed sword, and you're cutting a tondo to the legs, your opponent's reaction will be to slip back and to, to strike at your head. That's the, the a, a very basic movement. 
So you're cutting the tondo and you're already drawing back into a, a narrow guardia entrada, anticipating your opponent's action. Um, or just standing there. If you're standing in Coralunga Stetza, you're basically presenting your body to your opponent. You're saying, come, hit me here. Yeah. I'm wide open right there. Come on, throw the attack. You're forming a, a completely uh, impenetrable barrier on your right-hand side and seemingly leaving your left side exposed. And depending on which foot you put forward, um, you're presenting another target there. It means that you you can anticipate your opponent's actions and plan accordingly. So that's that's to me is the the basic tenet uh, when it comes to the the tactical approach to Bolognese fencing. Yeah, I I like that a lot because I the more I think about it, and the more I really try to conceptualize this um, and try to explain it to other people, especially students and things like that. Um, I think that's why there's so much uh, that's written about the guards, because, you know, if you really take uh, Morazzo's progression through his guards, that middle block that he ends up sticking in the middle of book two, um, mm. there's there's some really interesting uh, tactical insights that are in there, because he's essentially telling you various ways that you know, your opponent's going to want to attack you, the virtue of specific guards and what they're really good at. Mm. Um, and how you can use them in certain situations. Um, what do you think about that? Well, what you're describing, the Pote di Ferro Stretta, it's, for me, a fallback position. It's a, a, a very central guard. It's basically Terza uh, from the, the later systems. Um, and um, it's, it's, it's sold as a, a very safe guard, which is antithetical to the principle of trying to create an invitation. So for me, this position is one that you, you fall back into when things are starting to go wrong. You're not creating the invitation, but rather you're setting yourself up defensively now while you, you try and get your bearings again. You might be in Porta di Ferro Stretta uh, and then step forward into Cengara Porta di Ferro to create the invitation, possibly by presenting the point to the opponent's face to cause them to then do something else. Um, but to me, the uh, the the guard is just that. It's that uh, central position uh, to uh, present to your opponent to dissuade them from following up. Yeah, and and Marazzo, he I mean, he he gives us quite a few different guards, right? He gives us Cotolungastretta. I mean, he really goes mm -hmm. through all the guards, the ones where he's going through with the sword and buckler. Um, and he just gives us this random advice. Uh, well, not random. I mean, it's very specific advice based on each guard and what it's good at. Mm -hmm. He says Cotolongo Strata is good for both attacking and defending. It's sort of the most versatile of all guards. He talks about how Porta de Ferro Strata is really only good for defending because you can only you can only defend with your false edge and you can only attack with the point, right? I think he says something like mm -hmm. that. Um, and he goes through all these all the guards and says to sort of teach your students to learn how to attack and, and defend from each of the guards. And we get that laid out from Manciolino. Manciolino does that fantastically. He gives us attacks from every single one of the guards. Um, and then he yeah. gives us defenses as well, um, for the most part, especially with like sword and large buckler. Um, and then he gives us this integration when he gives us the sword and small buckler. But then yeah. when we look somebody like Dalagoki, a later author, 
he gives us a similar sort of uh, pedagogical approach where he gives us the defenses, he gives us the attacks, um, which the attacks are provocations, of course. Um, but um, yeah, so like, I, I feel like then we have this, it's one of the things that makes me mad about Vigiani is <laughs> because I feel like he disrespects <laughs> one of the things that was really the core tenets of the system. But then again, at the time, I can almost respect it because I think in a way, the idea was to simplify it to something that was a lot more practical and easy to think about in you know, a high stress situation. And that's where Agrippa's guards really kind of take hold and you see this transition to Agrippa. But um, I don't know, what do you think about that? Well, we can really start seeing that um, uh, adoption of uh, Agrippa's concepts in Palladini, for example, where he's using the, Ro the Roman nomenclature, but then he's got one very short chapter, uh, basically just a few paragraphs, where he's discussing the Bolognese cuts with the Bolognese terminology, because Palladini, of course, was from Bologna, that's where, where, he's, where he studied. Yeah. Um, and in this, this very short chapter, he's basically saying, these are the cuts that you must know, but anyone can teach you that. Basically, this, this is the old system. Everyone already knows this. He's far more focused on teaching you these new concepts. Uh, which I believe is also why the, uh, the diagram in Palladini um, bears such close resemblance to uh, Marozzo Senior, because of course he's familiar with the system offensive. Yeah, um, I, I really, I've actually created a form for Palladini's um, cuts and uh, mm. defensive cuts. And uh, it's, it's, it's actually, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's, it's very, very simple, but the interesting thing is, is there's some elements of it that just feel, I mean, positively like Alagoge and, hmm. um, hmm. and that's a, it's, it's a really interesting system though. Um, you know, and that's the, the other thing too, that I find really fascinating about that, about Palladini and his attacks and defenses with the cuts, um, is that he does use Bolognese guards, right? Like he tells you to go hmm. back to Facia. Um, and then from Cordia to Fachi, you end up cutting a reversal back behind, which is something very reminiscent of what we see uh, from, you know, Dalagoke. So it's almost like he forgets himself sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, even the concept of sitting in his initial guard, right? So he starts out and he's in Terza Larga, right? Which is the mm -hmm. first time we that <laughs> well, yeah. because it, it's totally unique i mean nobody talks about terza larga it's something that he he's just saying you know stay in quote along the larga but he doesn't want to use the or um you know the the bolognese terminology so he just goes with the closest thing that he can and just calls it terza larga so we hang oh, yeah, out but also but also try to uh, try to remember that this was a manuscript um it was basically all just scribbled down uh it may be that he was preparing to publish something but just never got never got to it sure yeah that's a good point so these, these may just be notes to himself and later on he might have then tried to, to tidy it up yeah no that's that's a really interesting point um but it does feel like because he uses things that are inherently bolognese like uh larga uh gordia de faccia that there's, you know, it's still, it's still deep inside of him. But then again, mm. he also talks, he, he, he definitely doesn't like Agrippa, 
he talks a lot about how he doesn't like the things that Agrippa does, um, hmm. where he, he tells you essentially not to lunge. Uh, he says that it's dangerous to lunge because you leave yourself exposed, and he prefers that you would pass with your left foot um, mm -hmm. rather than just lunge straight forward right foot if you're already in a right foot forward guard. Yeah, um, although um, you don't necessarily have to take a long lunge. You can take a, a, a shorter step forward. But again, this, this comes down to fencing on uneven terrain. Uh, we see this in the, uh, the other Bolognese tradition, uh, the other Bolognese texts as well, that you're not supposed to take too large a step because you might lose your footing. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And then coming back to Mancilino, we probably have something that could be argued as the earliest uh, representation of a lunge. I don't know. I, I hear that all the time. Like, what was the earliest uh, uh, use of oh, a lunge? Who invented the lunge? Mm. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, Mancilino, when he's talking about the end of his single sword material, you end up making mm. a parry that ends in Gordia de Faccia when somebody cuts a mandrito at you. And then you do an mm -hmm. impressive step to deliver a thrust or you do a yes but but to me the, the accrescimento it's not a, a long step it's basically putting your heels where your toes were so you're increasing your reach by by one foot's length um, gotcha. and the most the most common use of the accrescimento for me is to make a, a feint more convincing because if mm. you're just moving your arm towards your opponent but you're not actually getting any closer no one's going to be convinced whereas if you advance your foot even if your foot is just in the air for a fraction of a second, that's caught in the peripheral vision, and your opponent takes that on board. His foot is moving. He's coming to get me. This is my tempo. Nice. Yeah, so with the Anonimo, we get this. Don't we get something similar where he tells you to uh, use that as a, a way to provoke, where you get that half step out? Um, it's possible. I'd have to look it up because we're referring to an individual play in the entire corpus of the Bolognese system. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 also, it's, it's also possible that he might have used different terminology to describe the same thing because uh, in Anonimo, uh, frequently he's, he's describing a guard or describing an action which is later a more determined um, uh, term within the Bolognese system, but possibly doesn't exist or isn't commonly used at the time. Yeah. Hey, I got a question for you. All right, so mm -hmm. how do you do the Falso Impuntanto and Murazzo single sword? Um, the Falso Impuntanto is basically uh, to lift through a Falso to the opposite side of your opponent's blade. Uh, and to, to thrust forward from there to try to uh, uh, convince your opponent of one action but perform another. Interesting. So how would you do that from Cotolunga Strata, the way that he describes it? Um, with a, a, a circular upward falsa to come onto the opposite side of your opponent's blade. Gotcha. So essentially start with the falso and then wind it to true edge? Uh, a, cr a crescent uh, cut, basically. Ah, okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's one that uh, I've, I've seen a lot of different interpretations, and I haven't quite settled on one that I like. Um, and I've tried a, a, a probably a hundred different things, and uh, it's it's a uh, it's a tricky one for sure. Just well, no, I mean, come up with your with your own interpretation and demonstrate it and debate it with people, and you know, we just. <laughs> 
see whatever sticks with you. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. So um, what is something that you think that we can do um, as a community to better improve and reflect the sources in our fencing? Oh, um, I think this is something that has to be driven uh, by the instructors. Um, so I think one of the, the main issues I see in, in HEMA in general is that a lot of people have been around as instructors for a very long time. Uh, and I get the impression that a lot of them are quite fearful of their position as more and more new people are, are coming up uh, and becoming instructors in their own right with their own interpretations. Um, and they either retreat uh, and create almost a, a closed community within their school, um, or they just try not to encourage people to uh, to develop beyond a certain point. Uh, and I, a lot of this, I think, also comes down to uh, a cultural concept which we've now developed within martial arts in general, uh, a lot of it from coming from TV, uh, which is that the master, if, if you want to call yourself that, uh, the person who's teaching, always has to be uh, able to beat all of their students, you know, boot to the face. It's, it's complete nonsense. Um, we're, we're all getting older, we're all getting slower, um, and really it should be our ambition for our students to surpass us. And that's, that's how these, these systems continue to progress and get better. It should be our goal to make our students better than we are. Um, I mean, you, for example, um, if for my students to take me seriously, I have to be able to beat them in a sword fight first. I probably don't want them as a student. I don't want to, to have that, that hanging over my head. I've, yeah. I've already done that. I've already proven myself. I don't really want to have to keep doing that until, until the day I die. Um, I mean, you, you wouldn't hire um, a football coach based on their ability to outplay all of the other players on the field. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So I, I, I think that's, that's where, we have to, where we have to start. We have to start with instructors not feeling, like, um, not feeling like they have to be some Dragon Ball Z master at the end of the day. They, they're, they're just people, they're teachers, and what they're passing on is their wisdom um, they don't, and their experience. They don't have to still be 20 years old. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's sort of... You know, it's almost like the the greatest virtue that you can have as a teacher is passion, mm. and more well, so than well, uh, I mean, more so than skill or ability. Like passion is what will make great students. I think. Well, being a, a good fencer doesn't necessarily make you a good teacher, right, and yeah. vice vice versa. Um, and uh, I mean, take for example um, the the old Hema story. The one that everybody knows, which is uh, John Clemens losing his rag and challenging all of Poland to a duel, for example. <laughs> what, is, what, what, is this, what does this prove? I mean, even if he succeeded, it doesn't mean that he's uh, any better a teacher. So what's, what was the, the point in that? Right. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I've, I've been very... I'm fortunate to have a really great teacher and um, 
you know, one of the things when I started teaching that he shared with me uh, was mm. a video from a guy called Ramsey Dewey. He's a uh, an MMA instructor uh, that lives in Shanghai, and he has a, a YouTube channel. Um, mm. And he has this video where he talks about losing to essentially newer students um, mm. and how that's essential to your growth as as a teacher. And it's it's okay to lose and that you you should never you know let your ego essentially put you in a position where you feel like you always have to beat your students um it was a really great video um and i'm always grateful and i, I always kind of think back on that um and him sharing that with me but i think you, you said that eloquently so um, well if otherwise you're just going to end up resenting your own students whereas you should be proud of them and encourage them um yeah. but this brings us to the, the mirror side of that. And that is that at the moment, we make it too easy for someone to be an instructor. And I'm not saying that we should, we should not encourage people to go down that route. But at this point, all you need is a book and a sword, and now you've set up your own club. And I think it's, it's fine if you want to set up a study group, but you, you have to be honest about these things. Uh, and HEMA has now developed to the point uh, where we need to start looking at what qualifies someone as an instructor. We have enough experienced instructors that we can start having some kind of a, a system where someone can show not that they understand, you know, that you, you don't want to get to a point where you're basically telling people how to do the system because individual interpretation is, I think, essential to to HEMA uh, and the continuing uh, developing of our understanding, but rather to teach people how to put together a cohesive curriculum, um, how, how students learn, whether it's visually audible, practical, uh, and putting all of that together, we need to have um, a, a proper method of giving to people the understanding that we have developed over the last 20 and 30 years uh, so that they can build on that. Um, all of science is built on the shoulders of those who came before them. Uh, and if everybody starts from scratch with a book and a sword, we're never going to get any better than we are now. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, I mean, science is my profession. And one of the first things that I was taught when I started into, you know, my university was that question everything you know mm. don't take anything in science for an absolute there are no absolutes in science that's the first thing that you learn um and i, I feel that way and I, I feel like it's important to think that way with hema as well that there are no absolutes um, mm. but you know that's that's one of the reasons why i started this project i thought you know let me let me start talking to people who have these different perspectives and these different insights you know, i've learned so much from so many different people um you know and now you included about what it means to teach um what it means to work through different techniques and different perspectives on different ideas um and i hope i hope that it helps other people as well because i that's really kind of my goal is to just get lots of different opinions out there so that way people can weigh them together and start forming their own interpretations and ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, you put it a lot better, I think, than I did, uh, that you, you really do need to challenge everything. And that, that's, that's what you should tell your students too. 
I encourage my students to go out and train with other instructors uh, and to see what they do. And if they find something that works better, come back and show us. It's interesting. Um, as I've come further and further along in my HEMA life um, and, and my practicing years of, of Western martial arts, I think the thing that I've come to appreciate the most is workshops. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I get more excited about an event that has a lot of workshops than I do necessarily about a tournament or any sort of sparring. I mean, I love fighting different people. I try to fight as many people as I can because you can still learn from fighting other people. But mm. the workshops are always so entertaining for me because I just it's another opportunity to learn something else. Of course. But uh, again, this is uh, where we start seeing um, certain habits forming in instructors. Um, where they don't want to attend each other's workshops because they almost feel like it's embarrassing to to present the idea they might they might actually learn from somebody else. Um, and if if I go into into workshops, sometimes I I get strange looks for going into somebody else's workshop. But you know, it's 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 an open community, and we should we should take full advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think... fencing is a science. Fencing in any form, whether it's modern Olympic uh, fencing or it's it's HEMA or classical fencing, it all comes down to science. Um, and and uh, you, as a scientist, imagine if there was no such thing as peer review, uh, yeah. or if a, a scientist would come up with a concept and then stamp it and say, "This is this is final," and I'm not going to listen to anybody who disagrees with me from now on. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I really like about Jake Norwood's uh, theory of triangulation. Are you familiar with that? No, I don't believe so. Um, but then, but then the, uh, the US HEMA seems to exist in a separate sphere from Europe almost. Um, there's, it, there's not enough really crossover does. there. I agree. We kind of exist in a bubble. But, uh, and it's, it's really unfortunate too. Um, but hopefully this will be a sort of some sort of this will be a band-aid to that but um the triangulation that i'm talking about jake norwood um, put out i think he put out a blog post talking about this on um, the ckdf website which is the capital kunstdefekten um and essentially what he talks about in this is the triangulation is sparring textual study and cutting right and so those are the three mm -hmm. points triangulation that you get and um you know just doing the technique goes into the whole um it, like the the idea of textual study is actually trying to recreate the techniques and things like that and doing them mm. as sort of paired forms um where the uh the sparring triangulation portion is is Sparring, not necessarily from a combative sense in your school, but also sparring in terms of going out and, and fighting in tournaments and things like that. And so you take you take any sort of interpretation that you come up with or anything that you want to work on and you take it through that triangle and you constantly take it through that triangle. So mm -hmm. try to validate the same technique that you're working on with your, your partners. Um, you take that and then you roll up some tatami and then you try to do the exact same thing and be able to cut doing those same patterns with a sharp sword mm. and then yep you, 
you take that same thing and then you go into a sparring situation like a tournament and you go and you pressure test it against an uncooperative opponent and then you come back to the text figure out what went wrong work with your partners take it to the cutting and then take it back to a tournament and so well that's fascinating that's exactly what uh, what we encourage as well um so yes I, i think that's that's absolutely the right way to go about it um, of course, in the in the US, you have one great advantage, and that is that you have much more experience, uh, and you've been pushing cutting a lot more than we have over here. Uh, cutting really is very, very niche. Um, and later this year, we're we're going to be trying to organise the first dedicated cutting event in the UK, uh, because I think it's it's essential that people don't just um, try to tap at each other with a percussive blow and think that now constitutes a cut. They have to actually physically practice it and understand what's involved uh, in a a correct cutting mechanic. Uh, So for that purpose, we're also uh, going to be starting to sell uh, sharp blades through the the storefront, uh, specifically so that people can practice this themselves. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think one of the biggest revelations for me uh, when I was first learning, I ended up uh, getting a sharp side sword and I tried cutting based on, um, you know, just the general sense of how I was performing the forms. And I realized that my cuts were coming in way too horizontal. And mm-hmm. so I went back and I looked at the text and I looked at Manchilino and Manchilino talks about how when you're cutting a, um, a mandrito or a reverso, um, his angulation of those cuts is a lot steeper when he's talking about mm-hmm. cutting with a handed sword. Um, and so I went back and I tried that and lo and behold, <laughs> all of a sudden I was cutting through with, you know, gradual ease. Um, and I didn't have any, any problem cutting through tatami. And it was all because I mm-hmm. changed the angle based on what I had read in the text. Um, yes, I think Manchelino's angles are actually better. Yeah, I Definitely. Definitely. I don't, I don't really think that like a true, like sometimes we look at the image in Marazzo and we think like a true 45 degree angle would be perfect for cutting. Um, but it, I think it depends on the target, you know, mm. and that's the other thing too. That's something that's really unique about the, the concept of cutting is your, what makes a true dynamic cut is going to be based on the angulation of your target as well. Like if yeah. you're cutting a perfectly vertical target, um, you know, I think, so there are some darker aspects of cutting that don't necessarily really kind of help reinforce the ideas of what we're doing. Um, but I do feel like it is a really good way to learn and test. And that's the other thing too, thinking about drawing through and finishing your cuts as something mm-hmm. that's gonna actually cleave through a target versus just stopping short and cutting shallow. You have to understand that, you know, if I just, like you were saying, if I just sort of tap your hand with like a mezzomandrito, um, I'm probably, if, if you're not wearing leather gloves or a shirt, I'm probably going to leave a very superficial wound, right? Yeah. That's probably not going to stop your hand coming through and hitting me. So if that's what I'm relying on to, you know, score a point and I'm not worried about the after blow, then I failed myself because if that were in a real fight, then, you know, I would probably, I would probably get, take something even worse. Absolutely, and it's one of the things. Uh, also, the the opposite of that, something that we see very often in tournaments, 
is fighters sacrificing an arm or a leg in order to land that head blow, yeah. which is a in a, in a, a calculating fencer is fairly unusual. You wouldn't give up fingers, a hand, uh, your leg, just so that you can end the duel more quickly. Uh, although the masters do advise us to prepare for um, uh, a drunk or uh, uh, enraged or terrified opponent just flunging at you randomly um really a, a skilled fencer shouldn't just throw themselves at the opponent uh trying to land a, a three-point blow and sacrificing one point for it that's i think the wrong mindset uh, and not the reason why we've we've started doing hema yeah no is it giganti that says that after you finished training in the cell you should go out and you should fight as many people in the street as you possibly can to gain experience fighting unexperienced fighters it's either Giganti or <laughs> oh wow well, one of one of those lunatics certainly <laughs> but i mean he i don't think he's saying like completely random people but he is he well maybe he is <laughs> regardless um yeah so um but one of them gives that advice that you should essentially try to engage in as many fights with untrained sword fighters as you possibly can, because you'll learn something from them. You'll learn. Yeah. Although I'm hope I'm hoping that he's encouraging that in the sale rather than just going out and picking fights in the street with random <laughs> people. I, I think so. I, I believe so. And I, I know I'm misquoting it terribly and somebody is getting very frustrated, um, <laughs> you know, listening to this, but um still it, it's an it's a really interesting anecdote that i think is is really applicable because i mean that's kind of what you know we we get advice like that though from lots of different masters i mean going back mm. to lavino gives some really great advice on how to approach fighting somebody who you've never fought before um as mm. essentially you know he calls uh I, well, in the English translation, it's translated as shaking, but I think that he essentially tells you not to do a lot of cavaciones or sfalsadas against somebody that you've never fought before, or even faints. Mm. Um, he instead tells you to be very direct and use like constraining type actions um, when you're fighting somebody you've never fought before. And then once you have a good feel of how they fight, then you can start using deceptive actions like sfalsadas and feints. Um, but you should never do those things against an, an opponent you've never tested. Yeah, um, wise words, certainly. Uh, I'd, I, I suppose I'd agree with that. Yeah. So, um, but I, I think that 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 translates and that's one of the great things about tournaments is that one point of triangulation is that they do give us the opportunity to do that you know um yeah um but but coming coming back to what you were saying um before we we move on to uh on to tournaments um sure. i don't know if you've ever heard the, the saying the greatest swordsman in italy will not be defeated by the second best but by the worst <laughs> i have not heard that but that's perfect um because they're just going to do something completely unexpected um, and often uh, you were saying about how an instructor might get hit by a, a fairly new student. Uh, and that's what that comes down to. They, they, just, they might just throw themselves at you and land a blow because you just weren't expecting it. Um, or because a suicidal opponent is terrifically dangerous. What we were talking about at the beginning of this, this conversation, um, where someone would just try to engage in narrow play and try and charge you down. Um, so that that's the kind of thing that you might 
you might come to expect from uh, an unskilled opponent, and it can be very dangerous. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. I've actually seen that in a tournament one time. I saw a guy, I guess he was just not taking it very seriously, but he just essentially mm. walked straight in on every single one of his opponents. And he actually made it through the uh, the qualifying rounds to get into <laughs> the elimination rounds of the tournament, um, just simply walking in on every single person. There's been a, a growing interest in HEMA amongst the, uh, the Buhurt community, the, the Armored Combat Leagues, um, especially because they've now uh, developed this one-on-one -on -one fighting. Um, and they've started coming into, into HEMA tournaments as well. Uh, and of course, they, they have this, this notion of pressing in close, very fast and very hard, because usually they're, they're big guys, they're aggressive, um, and they're, they're used to putting their opponent on the ground. And it can be very intimidating. Um, and uh, you know, they, they start off um, not really... Uh, having any experience in HEMA. Um, and so they, they either go out in the qualifiers or soon after. But over the space of as little as a year, uh, they very, very quickly develop. And they still want to use this, this narrow play and get very close to you. Um, but their methodology of getting in close becomes uh, better and better the more training that they get within the HEMA community as well. So we can start seeing this, this crossover with other layers of interest, um, not necessarily in historical fencing, but in historical combat, whether that's some form of tournament scene or otherwise. I mean, that might be a good thing, though, if you think about it, because it would encourage people to some degree to focus on what it takes to actually counter that sort of thing, right? I mean, Oh yeah, I'm presenting it as a, a good thing from from all sides. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. the point I'm making is that these people are coming in with a different mindset, and it forces us to adapt as well. Yeah, exactly. And so that that, but to me, that makes something like Murazzo's, uh, you know, the, the strata techniques in in the first book. Um, that much more prevalent, right? Because he gives us counters to what happens if somebody just comes and throws their sword over our shoulder and decides to go for, for a, uh, a fireman's carry, right? And he's like, okay, well, if somebody does this, then just take a step back. I think he, I don't know if he says gambata there, but he does virtually just tell us to take a quick step back and throw a reverse otondo to the top of their head. Um, well, a common, sorry, go on. No, that that was that was it. I was, I was saying a, a common misconception uh, is that Italian fencing is very linear. Um, and later it seems to become that way, although you do actually have multiple rails that you can step off that, that center line. But certainly uh, in the 16th century, especially in the first half, uh, it's, it's all circles. It's about circling your opponent. Um, even when you step back, you want to be stepping back offline uh, and moving, moving around the opponent. Um, when you're stepping forwards, it's fairly uncommon to be stepping directly at your opponent. Uh, the steps are, are always to the side, obliquely. Yeah, and I, I think it is definitely something I think that, because, and perhaps, I mean, you've, you've been at this much longer than I have, so you can speak to this better than I can. But it seems like from especially the roots of the Bolognese study, that a lot of people who first came to study the Bolognese system were studying rapier in some way, be it Capoferro 
or Fabris or Giganti of the big three? Certainly in the UK, that's the case. Um, But I believe in Italy, uh, the Bolognese systems, um, they were adopted very early on by people who didn't actually practice rapier before that. And they, they stuck with it. Uh, I mean, take the, uh, the Saladama Akira Marozzo. It was founded yeah. based on Marozzo and focuses on the study of Marozzo. Uh, although they, they do also study all of the other sources from the period. So, um, yes, that's, that, uh, that may be the case in the UK and possibly the US as well, but certainly not everywhere. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. But they also have beautiful circular footwork, right? So it's like they've been doing this for a long time, but in the U.S. Mm. in particular. And so maybe I'm speaking more to the U.S. And, and perhaps to the U.K. as well. But it feels like they ended up coming to uh, the Bolognese system from either rapier or Olympic fencing. And so they end up having this very linear style, whereas you really look at the text, so much of the Bolognese system is all circular footwork. You know, you're mm-hmm. always sending that back foot back behind, you're stepping around. Um, I mean, you, you, I don't know how you could do the, the uh, any of the plays from the Anonymous Bolognese without dealing with, <laughs> with circular footwork because mm. you would drive yourself insane. But so, so many of the actions, it's not just circles, it's spheres. Um, so many of the actions involve uh, what Agrippa describes as rolling like a ball. Um, so, for example, when you're saying you're throwing the cards and you're moving the left foot behind the right, uh, you're rolling. Your entire body is rolling aside and rotating uh, in order to dissipate the force of whatever your opponent is throwing at you. Yeah, and, and we definitely see that, too. With, I mean, you can't really get past like the first play of Delagoke without really running into that concept, right? Where you yeah, exactly. To- in Gordia de Testa, and you're sending your your left foot all the way behind your right foot, and you're turning mm. your body completely behind that cut, so that way you can cut back behind with a mandrudo tromazone. Yeah, I, and I think that uh, what Danagoki is doing, everyone says, oh, he's, he's got a completely different Gordia de Testa. Um, I think really what we see there is a just a different transitional point in the same movement uh, that you would perform uh, when facing a situation like that. So uh, Guadalupe Testa, I, I think that even in the earlier systems, you can turn your point down to displace a, a cut coming in along that angle. Yeah, so interesting that you brought that up because I actually just uh, asked Tom Leone about this. And um, I was looking into the etymology of the word Testa. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, this isn't related, but it was something that I looked into um, and tried to research a little bit because I had read a really interesting research paper about the origin, Latin origin of testa. And testa came to mean head because it used to be a word, um, at least in ancient Rome, that was used to describe clay jugs and jars. And so it was a word that actually was used more as an adjective where it was used to describe something that was round. Mm-hmm. And it eventually came to be associated with the head because of the shape of the skull being round. And so that's how that sort of transitions. And I think by the 1200s or so, um, it was not really, it was pretty much cemented in, in Italian in general that Testa was head and there was no sort of counterplay between the two. There were some there's some loose examples of testa still being used to describe round in Latin, 
up until like mm -hmm. the mid 1300s, um, but not enough to really provide any sort of evidence that that's what the Bolognese authors were talking about when they were talking about Testa, but it would have been really convenient had it been so, because if, if that really is what they were describing is Testa more as an adjective than a noun, something that was around rather than just being the head guard, um, then that would have been really convenient. Unfortunately, it's not the case. And uh, Tom mm -hmm. Leone that for me, but. It would have been an interesting concept, but it's, um, the fact that you're forming a, a gabled arch if you take um, uh, Marozzo Mancellino's Guare di Testa and Dalagoki's Guare di Testa, um, you're forming uh, a gable, like the gable of a house above your head, um, by transitioning between the two, uh, which to me does rather imply that you're protecting against downward cuts on either line uh, against the head or the, the clavicles. Uh, so the, the head would seem the most, the most obvious term to me, but it certainly would have been uh, an interesting concept if it had been sphere. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, and, and Tom was really great about uh, providing a, a pretty decent answer um, in that regard um, and just kind of essentially said the same thing. Like, you know, there's no reason that we shouldn't still treat Gordia de Testa as something that's transitory and can go from mm. something Gordia de Testa and to Delagoque's Gordia de Testa, and that we shouldn't really have to worry about that. Yes, I think a lot of the guards are uh, transitional. You're not meant to, to pause in uh, Soto Abraccio uh, and wait for your opponent to do something. In fact, I think that would be very ill-advised indeed. Um, yeah. it's, it's just well, a, a guard that you've... Sorry, go on. There's an entire book written about that, and it's called 133. <laughs> Uh, it's it's not actually uh, a work that I'm I'm familiar with. I know of it, but I've I've never studied it. So uh, a good it, portion but, of, of one thirty three. I'm, I'm sorry. The a good portion yeah. of one thirty three is essentially your opponent being in a wide guard. Uh, so whether it's a sword over their shoulder, like Soprabrachio, um, hmm. and they do nothing, and then you just stab them in the face. <laughs> uh, maybe they're trying to teach you something there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, but I interrupted you. Go on. Oh, I was, I was just saying that um, uh, I think, uh, I'm not sure how he came onto that. So I was, I was just saying, I think too many people trying to be jacks of all trade. They study uh, all different works from all different periods. Uh, and in doing so, they, they rather uh, lose focus. So I think that uh, being broadly familiar with a lot of different stuff can help you with your understanding, but you can stretch yourself too thin in doing so. So, for example, studying the Bolognese school, if you then also want to be an expert in Lichtenauer and you want to be an expert uh, in 19th century military sabre, uh, you, you might be trying to do too many different things at once, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, I, that's, you know, a, another good conversation that I had very early on in my fencing career with uh, my, mm -hmm. my current instructor is, you know, at some point he came to me and I was doing KDF and I was doing Bolognese and he said, you need to choose. Um, and I was like, all right, well, I didn't quite understand at the time, but you know, his, his general advice to me was, if you have the time that you can do both, then go for it. But if you have a time constraint, 
then what's probably best for you in the long term is to choose one and to dedicate yourself to it. So if you could only do, let's say, two or three nights of class a week, then you should dedicate those two or three nights to one specific system if you truly want to become really great at what you're doing. Um, whereas if I had five or seven nights a week, you know, a single guy <laughs> who has nothing better to do, then perhaps I could try to master two systems. Um, but yeah. the difficulty is, you know, how much time you have and how much you can really put into um, the true dedication of, of one study. Well, kudos to your instructor um, for, for giving you that, that guidance as well. Um, even if it potentially led to the, the loss of a promising student, uh, he's being honest uh, and trying to, to lead you on a, um, uh, a narrow path to, to, well, eventually we aim for mastery, but that's such a, a loaded term because mastery isn't something that can ever be achieved. All you can do is journey towards it uh, for as long as you can. Uh, and aspire to mastery. So really, it's not so much a journey as a coddy womble. Um, but uh, again, we're we're, dig we're digressing here. Um, what was the, uh, the the subject that we were on before we got onto this? Oh, you know, we were all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about something that we think that the human community could better benefit or uh, improve upon to better reflect on their sources and their fencing. But I yes, think we, and we were we were talking about uh, Olympic fencing as well, and we were we were saying how um, people bring too much of that into HEMA. Uh, on yeah. the flip side, I think we're also too derogatory of Olympic fencing. At the end of the day, what we have here is hundreds of years of continuance uh, based on the very systems that we are studying now, and there's so much we can learn from modern fencing on how to to train in in modern concepts as opposed to uh, an athlete but how to train a swordsman uh what's the best way of doing it how to get the most out of them uh in the shortest space of time what's physical development for a swordsman uh, and really from fencing we can take so much away from that especially while we still have the opportunity to speak to living inheritors uh of uh, an actual dueling background there are still people who are alive and trained um, in fencing while dueling was still commonplace. Mm. They're not going to be around for much longer. No, that's, that's a really great point. Yeah. It, and those, I, I fully agree. You know, I mean, it's when we talk about like the greatest generation and things like that, and, you know, people going around and realizing now the eminence of, you know, getting interviews, as many interviews as they possibly can with people who fought in world war II. Um, you know, it's, it's similar in that we should probably, you know, make a concerted effort to go around and make sure that we're, we're gathering that information because you're right. We will lose. As soon as the, resources. As, as soon as the last world war two veteran is dead, every politician is going to jump up and say that they fought and died for what he represents or she represents. So, and that's why it's important that we actually understand the reality of that history and record it and, and protect that. Yeah, absolutely. This this is this is where history has value. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, and you know, you brought up a really interesting point because I think that there is a lot of derogatory nature towards Olympic fencing. And you know, 
I, I understand the frustration of longsword fencers that want to go and fight, you know, in a very KDF style fight. And they end up fighting somebody who's, you know, bouncing back and forth and just kind of staying in a, in a, a point forward guard and just going for very, you know, Olympic fencing type of flitch. Is it a flitch? Is that what it is? Where they go for that quick a, cut? A, fl a flitch, yeah. Yeah, a flitch. Uh, but, but that's it, not a that's not a cut. That's um, a passing step uh, lunge, which we see in Palladini. Oh yeah, we do. Yes, we do. Um, but you know, they go for uh, quick little flicks of the of the sword or something like that. Very shallow targets, things that aren't necessarily you know martially sound. Just to score mm. point, which you kind of talked about. And I understand that frustration. I and I think that there's definitely grounds to that frustration but i also think that there's an element of olympic fencing that we can look at from a strategic sense you know uh rob rutherford are you familiar with him the from, i know the i know the name yeah yeah he's from uh chicago um so he's one of greg Melee's students and um he just did an, a fantastic lecture on um on uh, obligation, first intention, and second intention. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know him personally, but I mean, we do sell his books. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he just did a great lecture on obligation, first intention, and second intention. And um, it's really fascinating because he's essentially pulling a bunch of material specifically from the Neapolitan school. So mid 1600s, looking at like Pallavicini um, and puts together this lecture that really ties all of those elements together, but also looks at it from the framework of Aristotle and relates it all back to the Bolognese system. And he's arguing legitimate points of tactical insight from Olympic fencing into historical fencing um, mm. with specific points of reference. Um, and it's brilliant. It, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, because when I looked at that, then I started looking at things like I-33. And I, I'm, right now I'm teaching a class on I-33. Well, it's a sword and buckler class that we started over the pandemic on Zoom. Mm. And uh, we were doing sword and buckler, we were doing Mancilino's sword and large buckler, and then they wanted to do I-33, so we transitioned into that. But it's the same concept that we see in I-33 with guards like Crook and, uh, and uh, Half Shield and the priest special words where you're going to oblige your opponent to then present your sword forward or something like Spreckfenster where in the Lichtenauer tradition or even long point where you're cutting to either Spreckfenster or long point to get your opponent to react in a specific way to reveal their first intention so you can deliver a second intention blow. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we see in Olympic fencing. I mean, it's, it's the exact same concept. And there are people who have been doing this and teaching Olympic fencing for 60, 70, 80 years um, who have a tremendous amount of knowledge that we can learn from. Well, the, the, the oldest practicing fencing master is 93 years old, and that's uh, Paolo Cansato. Um, he's actually an honorary instructor at our school as well. Um, and um, yeah, he's, he's still teaching now uh, down in uh, um, uh, southern Italy. And it's amazing. His, uh, his, his father uh, drew and charged in a cavalry charge. So 
he trained under uh, a, a cavalry officer uh, in how to use the saber. And um, in the interview we did with him, uh, he was saying how uh, modern fencing has changed since his day. And the thing that he, he likes the least, um, the two things he likes the least are, first of all, that you're not using the, the parata vera, the, the true guard. You're not defending yourself properly. You're just slightly deflecting and then counterattacking and not caring about the opponent's blade because you're abusing the right of way. You're not properly defending yourself. And that has turned into a game of turning on lights. Mm. So the, the, the people who came from before the electrification um, and uh, uh, before the, um, who was it now? Uh, I forget the name, but there was a certain development in the 80s uh, in Olympic fencing, where we started seeing the bouncing and we started seeing certain changes. The people from before then, um, uh, he, he went to, to Russia uh, and he was astonished to see his system, this very bouncy system being adopted by the Russian team. And the Russian coach turned around and said, yes, isn't it awful? It's your fault. <laughs> so yes, if, if, we look at, uh, if we look at classical fencing, which is still practiced in some places, um, and we, we look at uh, modern train, training for Olympic fencing, I think we can draw a lot from, from those two schools. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I, I used to have a, a contrary view, but as I've learned and as I've really started to look at fencing as an art and more from a technical perspective and less from a, I'm just learning how to move my body perspective, you know, I, mm. I think there's a, sort of a, a point where you've learned how to move your body well enough. And of course you can always improve flexibility, strength, things like that. Um, but there's a point where your body becomes very well adapted to what it is that you're doing and you have to start thinking about the mental side of fencing and that's where you really find most of your growth and I think once I reached that plateau um, I started to appreciate all forms of fencing and and the tactical elements of fencing much more than just the physical side of of training mm. well one thing that we do see in modern fencing that uh, is often uh, missing in HEMA uh, is the, the sense of intensity, uh, the, the determination uh, in the fences. Um, and we see that in the training as well. If you look at uh, HEMA training in Russia and you look at the, the amount of time they put into training and the dedication out there, I wish I had students with, with that level of dedication, people who will finish work and then go to the gym for five hours um, uh, and, and really dedicate themselves to it. Uh, I don't know what it is out there that's different. I don't know how, how they develop that. I don't believe that it's just innate to uh, Eastern European and, and Russian fences. Uh, but I really wish that I could figure out how to instill that. Mm. They train hard and party hard. They all, <laughs> they all stay up late. That's what it is. Um, yes, they I just don't, don't sleep. That's right. <laughs> Maybe when it's dark all the time, you just lose all perspective of, uh, of time. Um, I don't know. That's, that's a really good question. Um, and, and perhaps it is a cultural thing. Um, I mean, you think 
Russian excellence in all sorts of sports and, and endeavors. Um, and you usually think to how they train and, you know, it's a story that I hear a lot of people who engage with, uh, you know, various Russian institutions, whether it's chess or, you know, some sort of an athletic event or something like that is like you said, it's the intensity of training and the, the amount of time um, is just incredible. Well, they just live it. They, they completely yeah. dedicate themselves to, uh, to this function. Yeah. Well, they've definitely been successful. That's for sure. Hmm. <laughs> um, especially in, in recent years. Yes, I think that we need to, uh, to come up with new tournament rules that uh, ban young, healthy people. <laughs> That'll do it. That'll do it. <laughs> Well, okay. So I, I, I want to conclude on this point. So I, I want to definitely talk to you about the, uh, the English side sword open um, before we mm -hmm. go. Um, so what is the English side sword open for those who don't know? And um, tell me, uh, yeah, just tell me a little bit about it. Well, when I first came up with the idea, uh, I was told that it would never work uh, because there's not enough interest in side sword. Um, we should just have a sword and buckler competition with, you know, the usual long sword and rapier stuff. Uh, but I, I felt that the system really did deserve uh, an event of its own. So with some persuasion, uh, we managed to get it up and running. Um, and it's, it's, it's become tremendously popular to the point that it's now spawned uh, a European league which we're hoping to expand outside of Europe at some point. Um, certainly the, the Italians have, have embraced it entirely. Uh, most of the prizes seem to get carried off by Italians who've come to plunder gold from England. Um, uh, we have, we're going to have to see whether this is affected at all by Brexit, whether uh, travel is uh, impacted. Um, Certainly, uh, this year it had to be unfortunately cancelled. We usually run it in February. Um, but hopefully next year it can come back bigger and stronger again. Uh, we're very focused um, on having uh, both workshops and a tournament, and that the tournament uh, uses various different weapons. It's around the side sword and its companion weapons, so we don't, uh, we don't fight with, with partisan or anything. But we have uh, side sword and rotella, side sword and targa, side sword and dagger. Um, maybe next time we'll have side sword and cape, uh, and side side sword um, and um, bracciatura maybe. Um, and we we generally have four different contests, and we have four instructors teaching workshops. And what we did in the UK is that we had uh, two up and coming promising instructors. Uh, who are teaching workshops and two globally renowned instructors who would travel in from outside of the UK um, to, to teach their understanding uh, of the side sword. Uh, and we, we also bring in people who teach the side sword from outside of the Bolognese system, like Mayer's side sword, or uh, we had Tonpuri teaching um, uh, Guarino, so a pre-rapier uh, sword from uh, from from the the Spanish Peninsula, uh, what's now Portugal, um, and yeah, it it just took off. Uh, now we we sell more side swords than long swords. Uh, we're always sold out. Um, yeah, what, what can I tell you? It's been a, a very successful operation. 
Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I mean, I in my time of focusing on the Bolognese system, I've seen a tremendous amount of growth. And I can't imagine what it's like from your perspective, um, seeing this much growth, because it feels like, you know, there's a tremendous amount of interest now. Well, in, in three years, we went from the Bolognese system in the UK being a, an afterthought um, to becoming one of the most popular systems here. Um, we, it's, it seems not a week goes by where we don't see a new side sword school uh, popping up or uh, uh, an existing school adopting side sword and uh, teaching uh, marozzo or, uh, or uh, some, something like mayo or some such. Um, and clearly we've had, we've had an impact. And now side sword also seems to be uh, a, a regular uh, tournament showing in, in other events as well. Yeah, yeah, we've seen a, a big growth in the United States as well, uh, mostly in the in the southeast. Um, we've seen a tremendous amount of growth. And it's Excellent. Long may it continue. Yeah, absolutely. You know, hopefully, maybe we'll send a contingent over and uh, and and get stuck in with you guys. That would be fun. Fantastic. We'll look forward to it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, next week I'm gonna actually have uh, Eleonora from Malice Martialis on. Um, Ah, oh, Eleanor, great. Give her my yeah, best. I will. I will. And uh and we're gonna we're gonna talk about making swords. But you know, I, I just even from Malice from their perspective of producing swords, now we've seen because I, I feel like before it was it was Marco in Italy <laughs> making his beautiful swords. Mm -hmm. And outside of that the side swords were relatively sparse. It was hard to get side swords. They were not necessarily as prevalent. And now I feel like there are so many companies making side swords. Um, they're but all it's around. it's one of the it's one of those things. Um, uh, I I did an interview a while back, uh, and we were talking about the difference between side swords and basket hilts and so forth. And they said, why are basket hilts always, you know, short, very heavy affairs? Uh, and the answer is, of course, because it's a it's a safe bet. Um, everyone sells the same type of, of weapon, so therefore, why experiment? Why try and branch out? Uh, and then Bloss, for example, they started making Maya side swords. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody who does Maya now wants to buy that. Uh, suddenly, every other maker is bringing out Maya side swords as well. Uh, so the Bolognese system has taken off. People want side swords. Everyone starts making side swords. Yeah, no, no, and and yeah, I think that's what, and I think that's what I was trying to get at. You know, is that it's just a sign of the growth. It's a sign of just how popular it's becoming. That there was so much interest from all these blacksmiths that they'd had no choice but to start making side swords. Um, of course, you know, I I think that Malice Marshalls makes the best swords, but that's me. Um, I think right. I think one thing we have to focus on is that we don't uh, become too focused on just one standardized shape. I think uh, there's there's such a, a wealth and breadth uh, of weapons um, in this this category of what we now uh, in modern parlance call a side sword um, that it would be a true disservice if we just turned it into a short rapier uh, without a guard. Um, I think that they have to be either different categories or an, an open where people can can bring in their own side swords as well. Uh, at the English Side Sword Open, we provide the swords for people to compete in so that, uh, for example, if you're traveling in from outside of the UK, you don't have to worry about 
bringing a massive golf bag on a plane with you. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I think we do still have to have the, the open options where you can bring your treasured Danelli along for an outing or uh, a Schiavona or, or some, some, other, some other option. Uh, and people often, they'll, they'll develop their system around a particular length and weight of blade. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things you just brought up something really interesting that I, I wanted to ask about, you know, in art, we mm. see a lot of times these curved blades um, that almost look like a falchion. Mm -hmm. But we see, especially in Renaissance art, this prevalence of these curved blades, whereas we don't necessarily see as many show up in the treatises. Why do you think that is? Well, the thing about the, the falchion or storta or mesa um, is that uh, it's a particularly terrible weapon against an unarmored opponent. They, they were very, very flat, and it was very easy to take an arm off or even a leg if you were, if you were determined with it. Um, and I think that uh, also they were relatively easy to make and affordable uh, and easily portable. Uh, you didn't get your legs tangled up in it or whatever. Uh, and it was a, a pretty common weapon that you would have at your belt uh, if you were, for example, a mercenary. If you look at the Landsknecht, they're, they're carrying the, the Katzbalgo, which is a, a much shorter blade than you'd see on a, a gentleman's waist. And it didn't have a, a tip, really. It was a, a rounded end, uh, which gives us some concept of how these would have been used in, concept, in, in combat. And I think if you're on a massed formation, you don't want to have a, a long blade at your hip you want something shorter and more convenient in a press uh, and when you look at uh, for example um, a, uh, a a pikeman uh, in any depiction outside of the most fanciful they carry a, a short blade at their waist and I think that's that's really where these come into their own uh, in in Germany obviously it was part of the social culture uh, that that developed but I, I don't think that it developed in Germany alone. Um, I don't mean that in Italy it had the same social culture that in, in England it did or elsewhere. Uh, I think that was uniquely German uh, or to the region of the Holy Roman Empire and the, the, uh, the principalities around there. Um, but I think that it, it had a, a matter of convenience, like all military technology, it developed to serve a particular purpose. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, like because I, I think about like uh, um, Da Vinci's sketches, and he's drawing, you know, this this battle scene, and you mostly see these curved swords, like they're they're slightly curved. They almost look like like sham shears almost, um, mm -hmm. and they have like a slight, very slight back edge, and then it's very flat coming back down, um, and then they'll have like rings for the fingers. It's just really interesting. I, you know, I just wonder if why we see so many artistic representations of these swords, but not necessarily as much treatment um, in any sort of like fencing treatises. Or maybe they do exist, we just haven't found them. Well, Finger of the Quion uh, wasn't unique to the what we now call the side swords or with the fingerings. Um, mm -hmm. It started with arming swords where people would put the finger over the, the Quion, risking the finger to give them better control. Uh, we have this going back to the 14th and 15th century. We have depictions of, of this practice in action. Uh, Dottolini speaks, uh, he says uh, at the end of his book, uh, that if you're practicing these techniques uh, with a curved sword, you should do this and that slightly different. Um, I think the, the Italians really just didn't make much 
much difference. They were giving you a system for how to fight with a sword and left it up to you to adapt to whatever type of sword is your preference. Mm, that's really great. See, that's the data point that I needed. That's perfect. Awesome. Well, on that note, Jay, I think uh, we'll probably go ahead and wrap this one up, but um, I greatly appreciate it, man. Thanks for coming on and, uh, and sharing your wisdom with me. Not at all. And uh, thank you for inviting me. And that concludes another episode of Learte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank Jay for coming on again and introduce next week's guest, which is going to be Eleonora Rebecchi of Malice Martialis. And she's going to talk to us about the process of designing and making swords. So stay tuned for that and stay saucy, my friend. <laughs>